This is Dave. This is Al. This is Yanni. Also Blake. This is James. This is Will. This is Caitlin. And we are iPodcast Magic Missile. Welcome to iPodcast Magic Missile, where we play games and talk geek. Broadcasting every week from the New River Valley in the beautiful mountains of Southwest Virginia, we bring you audio from some of the most exciting games, new and old. No actual wizard spells here, just actual play from great games. This is iPodcast Magic Missile. So, you are working on the, the rules for the next iteration of the, the fantasy campaign. You actually talked about some game design techniques. Coincidentally, Game Chef just started, if anybody's interested in that. That is a build-an-RPG based on a guideline and four ingredients. It's basically Iron Chef or Chopped, but with, mm. yeah, with tabletop RPGs. I'm assuming it also, like Iron Chef or Chopped, only has professional contestants? No. Anyone can join it. Oh, okay. Uh, it's, yeah, if you just look up Game Chef, the, this year it is... The theme is there is no book, so they want games that do not have one centralized like tome of rule information. You have only ten days to build this game, it just started today. Mm. And the ingredients are, I think, absorb, sparkle, wild, and sight. No, sickle. That's what it is. So you have to pick two to three of those ingredients, plus the theme of there is no book, and write an RPG or story game in the next ten days. Hmm... Nothing immediately springs to mind that excites me about that because, I, like, we've got our own project that we're working well, on. Well, right uh, no, I'm, 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 like I said, I, this is not a this I, this episode actually could actually be released during Game Chef, but I was just bringing that up because game design is a thing, and Elle and I obviously are designing Souls of Steel, which uh, I am not committed to bringing to Origins, so I just talked to them today, the Games on Demand people, so I will be running Siren and Souls of Steel at Origins for Games on Demand. Which means that, like, we're, a lot of us are involved in game design mm. right now, of one form or another. Um, and you talked about guiding questions. I've, we've talked about... We actually haven't talked about our process a whole lot. And I was thinking no. that maybe that would be kind of a, a topic for that we can maybe talk about a little bit if people are interested in talking about it. For this podcast? Yeah, why not? Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> That's there we go. Fun. And you've designed some games. And I don't know if James has designed any games, but you can certainly speak to what makes a game fun or not. You were actually talking about your process. How do you get started? You're talking about Will's uh, questionnaire that he made for me? Well, I actually made, I would have made it for myself right, uh, right. if you hadn't been there. So, uh, I've been trying to make games, and I get about halfway through making a game and been frustrated because it wasn't the game I wanted to make. And so I finally sat down and I said, what is it that I'm doing wrong? Why is this game not turning into the game that I want it to be? And it's because when I had previously been trying to design a game, what I did was I said, well, that sounds like a fun rule. I'll put that in. That sounds like a fun rule and flavorful. I'll put that in. And before I knew it, I had a game that wasn't actually the game I set out to design because I had picked and chosen... Uh, rules that sounded fun at the time, and I had stuck them together, and then a game happened out of that. You're a bag of mechanics looking for a theme, instead of a theme looking for a bag of mechanics. Very similar to good character design, you want your concept first, right? And then you come up with the rules that make that happen. Exactly. So what I came up with uh, for the first time this time, and I'm going to use this every single time I design a game, is a series of focusing questions. What I had was a list of about 17 questions that were anything from what perspective is this game from to is this game going to have a winner or is this game going to be about the experience of it. Uh, Obviously, chess is a game that has a winner, but not every game has to have that. I mean, we play plenty of role-playing games where there isn't a winner and it's tons of fun. People aren't sitting there like, Man, I wish someone could just say that they definitively won Apocalypse World. And uh, they became uh, more and more refined uh, as you went along. And once you were done with the questionnaire, you really had your attack plan. What the game was going to look like. And, you know, as you're answering questions, you actually change what some of the goals you had earlier were. Because you realize, oh, that actually was the thing I was looking for. So what are examples of some of these questions, then? Um, some of them were easy to uh, answer, and others were not so much. I can't re- What was the question right towards the beginning that we almost got in a fist fight over? Um, it was like the first or second question we, like, 
I, I, I feel like Will and I, the maximum level of like emotional uh, violence between Will and I is extremely low. And we hit it on the second question of this thing. I think it might have been how much role-playing do we expect the players to do. That's exactly what it was. Which is an important question for a game. I mean, if you're going to come up with a game like Warhammer Fantasy, uh, obviously almost none if they're playing an actual game with minis, and the point is to clash your uh, toy soldiers together. If uh, any of the Games Workshop like CEOs were here, they would slap you in the face for that statement. I would slap them harder. <laughs> Because the way they expect the game to be played is with, like, 95% role-playing and 5% gamism. Well, they shouldn't have put point values on it, should they? Yeah. Yeah. It's 58-point demigriff knights. <laughs> you are never going to begrudge the... You are never going to forgive those demigriff knights, those two points. Nope. What? Anyway. They're 58. Yeah. 55 plus 3 is 58. Yeah, oh, they could I was be 60 minus yeah. 2. Anyway, the point is, so I had a bunch of different narrowing questions, and I think it's sort of different uh, depending on what kind of game you are planning to make, and so you sort of create this these series of narrowing questions. And really what I ought to have done is actually wrote the narrowing questions with you sitting next to me. Yeah. But I figured that would be a good way to start us off. We did add like two. We did during the course of the thing, and I and I did question the validity of some of these questions, in particular the role playing questions. I was like, we can't force people to role play. That is not that is not a drop we can make someone drink. You know, if they want to if they want to do it, then they're go- like we you can't stop them. And 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 I I remember straining the word can as opposed to the word may like. It's a physical impossibility. The context here is that we're making a game uh, which is ostensibly designed to increase Warhammer Fantasy sales. Because people will be playing games of Warhammer and therefore be interested in the game of Warhammer again. That's an excuse I make to my shareholders. The point of this game (laughs) is so that people... (laughs) Do you have one? My shareholders is the part of my brain that is like, Blake... Care more about money and less about, like, a, Having a good time. genuine gaming experience. <laughs> so the point of the game is to appeal to a wide audience. So we couldn't... Well, I wouldn't have minded uh, having a game where we could have had it from the perspective of a random orc if you were playing an orc army, and you were experiencing what it was like if your commander was winning or losing battles on the cusp of taking a city. That would have been an interesting game. Not that necessar- sounds awesome. Can well, I just say? That could be Warhammer World. Hold on. <laughs> I've got stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I might make that happen at one point. Anyway. That does sound like a really cool idea. <laughs> but that wasn't necessarily the game we wanted to make here. We wanted it to be uh, available uh, within the at, at least one standard deviation of the kind of game that our average Warhammer players would play. We also um, made a point, uh, you know, before your list of questions, or was it before or after your list of questions that you had your list of complaints? It was before, so that they could be out on the table when we were answering those questions. We, had a li- we made up a list, or Will made up a list of uh, player complaints from the previous seven editions of Fun and Games Warhammer Fantasy campaign rules. Mm-hmm. It was relatively short, because, I mean, a lot of them were fun. Most of them were balance-oriented or I don't feel like my campaign game is affecting the campaign map, mm-hmm. and vice versa. It was, a lot of it was about making the losers still be, feel like they were playing. But uh, rewarding the winners for winning, which yeah. is hard. It, it is a very hard thing in a campaign. Because you want to do both. Elasticity. Rubber band effect. Yeah. Yeah. We, 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 we get that 2d6 curve going for or us. Or the Mario Kart effect. As we like to say, that the guy at the back mm-hmm. gets the blue shell, the guy in the front gets one banana peel. Or a green shell. The mechanic that we opted for on this one is that the primary randomization mechanic of the campaign rules is to roll 2d6 to accomplish a thing. And as you... Uh, to make a resource, in fact. Well, yeah. Your basic uh, unit of... Money? Not necessarily. A resource currency. Can be, currency was the currency. One. You can do anything with these resources, and they can represent a variety of things, from a gold mine to a dragon to a particularly good general. Mm-hmm. The basic currency of the campaign: uh, the number of them that you have is the number you have to roll to buy another on two d six. So that means I that like if, it. so it's hard capped at thirteen, which is extremely <laughs> difficult to make, uh, and 
the more you make, the more attempting to get another one is a waste of time. But when you're down at the bottom of the curve, like, you can grab those first five, like, it's no problem. So if you get decimated and set back to the... That, this is what I was talking to you about before. We really wanted to be... Our design at, at this point, we're, who knows how successful we're going to be in it, was for the winners to get up to the upper echelon and have their gameplay stagnate, where they can then spend their entire fortune to buy a penis statue and set themselves back to square one so then they can be the underdog working underneath the other players to get back up into that, like, you know, position, where climbing the ladder is the fun part of the campaign... And the objective is to climb to the top of the ladder and then parachute off. So we're hoping... And, you know, I think that this could, actually sounds like a really great design. I feel like this could even... You, Al, you were saying how like 40k players wouldn't put up with this shit. But I actually think they might. It, But you would have to do a little bit of a... a, a it would take some salesmanship to make them drink the Kool-Aid. All you have to do is go in there like ju- building that penis statue and parachuting off the top of that ladder is a thing... That you expect them to want with their spikish, gamist, gotta win at all costs. It's, That's what you it's, win. It's the, like building building your monument. I think. Oh, you I, could, I know what it is. I think it's great. You could trick them by giving victory points for building these statues and be like, you know, you're totally right. And you, they'll be like, oh, I do like victory points. I'll do this game now. That is true. You just assign an arbitrary point value <laughs> Hang on. to your penis statues. <laughs> but isn't that the kind of players are dumb and can be easily manipulated kind of Watsy type of thinking? If you that think you it's not about, fun, Watsy is villainous, but a bunch of fucking geniuses. <laughs> well, hold on a second. If, if, you, if you were convinced you were having fun, aren't you actually having fun? To a certain extent, we're kind of trying to, like, mix the meat into the vegetarian's porridge and, you know, like, trick them into... The other way around, I think. You're mixing the veggies into the picky eaters. Well, whatever. Well, anyway, <laughs> the point is... The point it is, I think it's a kick-ass idea. It, so, if it works... And the, yes, and another in theory, reason, I think it's a great idea. Let another, us not be let us not be overly cocky in our uh, no. This is going to be in our degree of success. I'm I can be cocky for statues. you because I'm not actually part of it. <laughs> Will got it. So another interesting thing about this game is instead of having an overworld map to allocate your resources to, we have a, several different theaters for which you can uh, put these in. So you could put them in the theater of infrastructure. Or the theater of espionage. Mm-hmm. The idea is each theater is a capacity in which the various empires are competing with each other uh, for dominance. So, in this in this uh, paradigm, you would have uh, someone who could be putting a bunch of stuff into espionage, or a bunch of stuff into uh, prowess, or a bunch of stuff into lore, and they could all represent different ways of going to war with someone. Mm-hmm. Lore would be, you know... Finding some demons to summon to kick some people's uh, teeth in. Uh, espionage would be, you know, finding out their plans before battle and then ambushing them. It, don't, it doesn't really matter exactly how uh, uh, you choose to imagine how this helps your war effort. It does. Yeah, we have a lot of... Uh, one of the other things that we're building into this one is a lot of freeform elements. Like I mentioned that resources are the currency of the campaign. Mm-hmm. All a resource is, is a resource. Like... Yeah. It's just a it's just a blank ball that the player buys. What it actually is, they are required to make up themselves. They're like, I'm buying a resource. I'm buying a infrastructure resource. Okay, what well, what is it? Uh, better road system, trains, moon rocket, whatever. Right? <laughs> um, Yay, moon rocket. <laughs> It's and the way to get the the spice there. We feel like we're going to get a real good. Uh, at least I'm excited about the possibility of this really diverse narrative which yeah. is one of the things that we've always wanted to get in the fantasy campaign. We've skipped off the surface of it a couple of times, and each of those times, you could feel the electricity as everybody wanted this to work. Like The example we came up with was the uh, the ring, the one ring to rule them all. Just a straight plagiarism job on Lord of the Rings that we worked into previous incarnations of the campaign where players could... Quite by accident, if you rolled a natural 12 on the 2d6, mm-hmm. find the ring. Just in the middle of doing something else, you would suddenly find yourself in possession of this ring. And basically, the mechanics of it was that it was worth almost nothing to most players, because most players were forces of destruction flavored rather than forces of order flavored. I think there were three people in a campaign of, like, 11 who weren't forces of destruction. 
and, and one of them was me, Forces of Neutrality. So, if the ring was held by any member of the Forces of Destruction, they would all get the exact same benefit. But those Forces of Destruction people fought over it tooth and nail to have that ring. Forces of Order, God, on the other the hand. Ring. Forces of Order, on the other hand, if they ever got their hands on the ring, it was worth no points to them until they destroyed it in the volcano. In the fires of Mount Doom. But they would have to manually run it across the map to that volcano. And of course, with, you know, another eight forces of destruction <laughs> players, like, all the forces, and if they ever dropped it in, all the forces of order got a permanent victory point bonus that they could never lose. So it was like, when, when the ring popped up, all the forces of destruction were like, all we have to do is keep it on our side. Whereas the forces of order were trying to get it away, but then they had to drill through. But of course, suddenly all the all the players are in it for themselves. <laughs> Except when this ring pops up, suddenly the good guys and the bad guys all team up with their own side to try and do this. So it didn't end up working anywhere near as well as it sounds like it did. But when the ring was discovered... Like, this, there was this sparkle in people's eye that we were like, we want to make that sparkle the entire campaign. Mm-hmm. I, I think we can we can manage something similar, perhaps not as great as the first moments of discovering the ring and knowing that it had to be yours. <laughs> precious. <laughs> but if you want, you can invest in uh, a way to steal specific resources from someone. So if they have uh, the sword of the Lady of the Lake, well, I'm a Bretonian player. You can't just have that. That's mine. And so a Bretonian player can send knights off to steal it in in the in the darkness and bring it back. But, you know, could you bring yourself to do that if you're a Bretonian player? I mean, it's the sword of the Lady of the Lake. You've got to do it. Beastmen have it. She would want it that way. <laughs> and so you can sort of see the stories create themselves that. Like I think that. that's great. You've given people a framework in which they can create really compelling uh, fiction. So, I, I, I'm actually very excited about it. I have expressed to them multiple times that, though I don't play fantasy, I want to play in their campaign. And it's never been easier in any Warhammer fantasy campaign. Because, uh, basically, the difference between a person who plays in a battle and the person who doesn't get to play in a battle is... Uh, in previous editions, you had two resources of some use, some utility, and they were sort of blank. And if you won a battle, you got a third one. F- effectively kicking up your effectiveness uh, 50%. It was huge. In this campaign, you have five uh, utility uh, items, basically. Five actions. Five actions. And if you win a game, you get a sixth. It is so small winning a game. Furthermore, so just not playing at all is an option. Furthermore, there, yeah, there, there, there will be no functional difference between a player who doesn't play, uh, who doesn't fight battles, and a player who loses every battle they fight. Also, in this campaign... Of which we have many. <laughs> if a player doesn't happen to show up for a particular session, they're not ruined because they still have their whole horde, that all of their resources are still allocated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not as efficient as if they showed up, but it's not devastating. You won't lose all of your territory in one deadly push like you will in previous campaigns. Right. Like, if you missed a a session, you could pretty much guarantee that you had maybe your capital if you were lucky. So, getting back to this, you know, you guys settle on the principles that you wanted to do first before you came up with mechanics. Mm Mm-hmm. And you've you've adopted sort of a rubber bandy sort of keep everyone in the thick of things, but only with a really simple, elegant mechanic, which is what we wanted out of our game. If you wanted to have a not rubber banding mechanic, uh, that would be fine too. Uh, a game uh, that uh, st- strikes me as a great example of a game that wanted to do a rubber banding mechanic but really failed to do so was Injustice: Gods Among Us, which I've been watching the cutscenes of, but not the uh, but not actually. Uh, getting the game itself. It's a fighting game where you have two health bars, and that's the rounds. When you are knocked down to one of your health bars, players take a, a quick breather so there aren't nasty combos that take you out like a zillion ways. And this was in- originally intended as a rubber banding mechanic, because, you know, if you get your ass kicked, uh, you still got your licks in, and your licks in that you got in still carry over to the next fight. 
okay, that sounds like it's maybe a rubber banding mechanic. It's not as backwards. It is backwards. Because if you lose your first match and are massacred in a regular fighting game, you you're have... You're back to even for the second fight. You're back to even for the second fight. And if you win that second fight, you get an extra health bar. Effectively, this game says you have two health bars to... Uh, for three rounds. For at, at best. At best. Whereas in regular fighting games, you have three health bars for three rounds if there are three rounds. It's almost impossible to come back in this game. But I could see the mindset of, oh, we want to make a rubber banding mechanic. Let's go do that. But it didn't follow through. Well, like, like I said, Mario Kart is the best thing. If you want to understand how rubber banding works, Mario Kart is the right answer. Because Mario Kart basically cheats for you. The further back you are, the better toys you get. You would have, you would think they would have, like, <coughs> tested this and been like, you know, this whole two-bar thing isn't working out. Well, it looks good on paper if you don't think about it too hard. Yeah, but and I imagine they would have... all the testers are equally good at it. It d- looks like it's a rubber banding, because you're like, well, we had such a close fight, so I, I didn't have to get through an extra health bar, and I basically have the same HP as you do. Another one that sort of had a similar problem was the original Soul Blade, because you could destroy someone's weapon. I found a tactic that just totally broke the game. Uh, it was either Sophia or um, Cassandra. I can't remember. She didn't she, appear until Soul Calibur 2. Then it was Sophia. Had a weapon called the Swordbreaker. This weapon didn't really do much damage. But your weapons had hit points. So I would fight, and every time I would lose the first match, but almost destroy their weapon. In the second fight, the second round, I would destroy their weapon and kill them. In the third round, I would just kill them. Because they didn't have a weapon anymore. It just didn't work. Because, and that's why they got rid of the yeah, points on the weapon. Because they thought to themselves, well, well, let's make a simulation. And they didn't test to see whether it would fit with their Bag flavor. of mechanics. Yeah, they Here's a bunch of good ideas uh, mechanically, or here's a bunch of flavorful things mechanically that don't fit. So I think that actually leads into what we're doing right now, <clears> because <throat> we're building a Powered by the Apocalypse game. Powered by the Apocalypse game are color first, they're flavor first. But they provide a nice framework for that. So let's actually talk about what the conception of the game was. I think we both decided that a game that had to happen that hadn't happened yet (laughs) was... The Mecha Ace Pilot sort of game. The Battlestar Galactica, the Wing Commander, the Top Gun. The the thing where you're you're a team of, of pilots of some vehicle of some variety... I think it started with mechs, but then, like I said, Wing Commander and VSG were brought up. Well, the other, remember, there was an old Battlestar Galactica 2. Like, this is a trope that's gone back forever. There's probably old World War II movies about ace pilots that are the same way, right? Oh, totally, right. Yeah. And and there's a there's that dynamic between those pilots that is, especially in like in, like, in, in the fiction about surrounding them, that, that there's this element of teamwork in the field, and then get them off the field, and, and they're very different personalities, and they kind of butt heads a little bit. But And they're hot shots, so they all think they're important, and they're all fighting for the same girl. Right. Or oh, guy, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and they are all important. They're just very different, and they go about it differently. And, mm-hmm. and because, you know, they're these badass ace pilots, they can kind of get away with a little bit more. Exactly. And it, so there's freedom to tell an interesting story within a military setting that you mm-hmm. wouldn't have if it was something like what the regiment does. Right. Right. Um... So, I really like you guys' name for it, too. Souls of Steel. That is inspired. Yeah. So, um, well, so, so that was one of the things so, so, so now we had this high concept of the game, right? Mm-hmm. We had our, this is what the game needs to do, right? And so then it was like, okay, well, what are the pieces that go into a Powered by the Apocalypse game? Well, you get your stats, right? Mm-hmm. And we came up with some... Actually, I think we came up with the playbooks first. We did. And actually, there was a two-stage process there because we got it wrong the first time. So talk about this. There is this moment. Okay, so so first off, we were like, all right, so in this fiction, what do we have? Well, we, you know, we have, like, you know, the heavy gunner, and we have, like, you know, the scout, and the the team leader, and the engineer. And then there's this moment where we both looked at each other, and we both started (laughs) to say something. No, no, you go first. And we both just simultaneously, like, no, this is wrong. The, the story is not about their the 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 people's jobs within the military. It's it's the jo- the, the story is about these characters and their personalities. Yes. So we made things like the hotshot, the specialist, um, the leader, the veteran, yeah, the rookie, the 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 the, the, the head case, the role they they play socially when not exactly. in the field, as opposed to their job. 
when or they're, you know, through both. The rookies, well, yeah, the totally. rookies, the noob. They don't know what they're doing. The it's veteran, still a social role, though. Yeah, it's yeah. both though. It, it, the, it the, the ace pilot is the one. Is she's the one with the aviator glasses and the leather jacket who struts into the mess hall and everybody's looking at her. She's Starbuck. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, let's be but honest. <laughs> she's also the she's also the one that does the crazy shit in combat because right. she can right. because she's the best. Right. Right. Totally. But well, she's not fit to leave. But what's the head case then? Oh, well, that case is sort of a, a catch-all. It's mm-hmm. the... It, it, depends on your, it depends on your genre, right? It's the robot. It's the alien. It's the person who's just very strange. The psycho. The team, the team weirdo. Yeah, the yeah. team weirdo. I know um, that you don't like suggestions, but I disagree with the name headcase. You want weirdo? No. I just disagree with the name headcase. Okay. Okay. It's not what? evocative to me. Of what, anything. What, what would you suggest, out of curiosity? I don't have a suggestion. Okay. <laughs> okay. We'll we'll think about that. Fair enough. Note to self. I didn't bring my notes. <laughs> we we have we have a, we have a stack of notes. We have to. We're, we're going to be demoing this at Origins, a beta of it. So uh, you know, no layout or anything like that. But we we expect to have a working full set of rules by then. So, anyways, once we have that, right? Right. So we have these playbooks. So okay, it's super evocative. We have playbooks. We have these core stats. We have... They really float after that. Oh yeah, there's totally. A, there was this kind of moment. Like, we call like, it square peg and round hole. Where where, where, where <laughs> we're, we're trying to make a game of like, all right, and we're focusing too much on the military part. And then we're like, oh, no way, it's about the personality. All of a sudden, boom, floodgates were open. It was a really interesting moment. Yeah. Know, and, then, and then the other thing that we, we, we talked about was the other pieces that are... A lot of people overlook this, but the relationship mechanics and the currency are always very important. Mm-hmm. Monster Hearts was the demo, demonstration for this. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants because, you know, we have Vincent Baker, we have McDonald, we have, um, we have games like Dungeon World, right? Mm-hmm. And realizing that the relationship mechanic, in some ways, is more important than all of those things. Or at least it's, it's of equal importance to any of the oh, other absolutely. aspects of the game. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, I mean, honestly, the char- characters in general, I mean, people in real life, right? You're defined largely by your relationships. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily purely, but largely. It's a, it's a, it's a large, important, it's a big, important part. So, you know? so again, it was a case of just identifying the things that were important to us that, that, that supported that theme. Correct. And then trying to... And there's a bunch of good ideas for rules that we sort of threw aside, or good ideas for, for playbooks or for moves or whatever. We threw aside because, like, this doesn't support the specific fiction that we're... the specific thing the game is supposed to do. Gone are the days... And I know the Jank cast just did, a, did an episode on game design as well. Uh, gone are the days of trying to create the... One system fits all game, mm-hmm. the GURPS or the D20. Right. Well, it works, but it doesn't. You know, on the one hand, if you want to just run a simulation, you can make a set of rules that's, effect- that's effectively the, the, the uh, dice-based you know, equivalent of a physics engine mm-hmm. that will support anything. You know, yeah. GURPS. It is, it is a very good simulation of quote-unquote real life. Um, for, for, for certain vague definitions. I said quote-unquote. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, the, they, new, the new age is, uh, instead of a one-size-fits-all one game, it's a one-size-fits-all game template. Pack, only Power of the Apocalypse. But Power of the Apocalypse has sort of dominated the conversation for a while. I think it's actually starting to fall out of favor among cutting-edge game designers. That doesn't mean that there aren't still really great games being made for it. Because it is a great framework. For character ensemble dramas, which is a very specific set of genres, right? Yeah, I definitely... It doesn't work for other things. I've definitely noticed that, that game design has kind of started pushing in this direction of of very specific mechanics that reinforce a theme you want. Exactly. Which is almost better, in my opinion. Well, it's it's the whole... it's the whole. This came out of the Forge, right? It mm-hmm. came out of the, the game mechanics sh- should do the thing that the game is supposed to be about. Precisely. Which, nece- which necessitates, in many cases, having a more focused experience. The point where some games are like Lady Blackbird, it's a single scenario. That's the whole game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean you would necessarily need to do that. Fate Accelerated is a great example of a genre simulator that's extraordinarily broad. It really is a toolbox that you can throw anything into as long as it's pulp. Mm-hmm. Apocalypse World Engine is a thing that you could throw anything into as long as it's a character drama. Anything else you want to say about your process? Because you've also come up with some rule sets for other stuff like your um, Fallout. That's true. Um, although, I must admit, I did jack a lot of it from... Um, so I, I made up a Fallout game uh, two summers ago, I think is what it was. I ran a, um, a Fallout-themed RPG, because I love Fallout, and I got some, I wrote some people into it. And um, I made up a system for it. I 
largely based it off of the actual Fallout mechanic system, though, special. Um, which, um, so for those who don't know, the Fallout games, the Fallout series, um, they actually have dice mechanics under the hood. It's a full RPG under the hood. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, 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 they've lightened it up with every successive game, basically. But for, like, Fallout 1 and 2, it was actually, and Fallout Tactics was actually a pretty thorough RPG that, there, there's a guy that did, um, that basically converted, uh, from the file, the game files, actually made a tabletop version. It's clunky. It's very gerpsy. Just, if you look up Fallout Pen and Paper, you'll be able to find it. I tend to run games, even trad games, like Powered by Games, i.e., um, very rules light, very, yeah, that sounds cool, whatever. And, um, so I, I basically lightened it up quite a bit, kind of balanced it out, because I've played enough Fallout, I know what the broken combos are. You didn't want to differentiate between hitting someone in the eyes and differentiating them from hitting them in the head? No. You didn't think that those needed to be different? We have a Jason Mickle, or Michael? No. Is, no? Okay. Oh, that's a different one. Okay, no That deeply bothered That's a different right? Fallout pen and paper. Um, D20? Huh? No. In uh, Fallout uh, 1 I'll and 2, eventually this yeah, you can hit some, you can choose to target a variety of different body parts. Uh, like the arm... Uh, left arm, right arm. The benefits torso. are that you get extra crit damage. Crits are huge in Fallout. Mm-hmm. Like crits, because you have DR. Crits dominate the combat system. Um, you build crit fissures and you kill everything forever. Um, and so, you know, critting someone in the head is different than critting someone in the torso, which is critting different from critting someone in the foot. You know what I mean? Um, and so, as Will was saying. For some reason, you know, you have all the standard hit, hit location. Arms, torso, legs, head. And then you have eyeballs and groin, which are my two favorites. <laughs> oh, of course. Um, and before you ask, yes, you can sledgehammer people in the groin. Um, it is not as fun as it sounds. Nobody was going to ask that. I prefer a plasma rifle to the eyeball. Very cost efficient. It is. It is. It's pretty much for about three action points. You can just nuke a super mutant, just dead. You know, seven hundred plus damage. Oh, um, I don't know how you hit them in both the eyes, but not the head. I think it's more that the eye is more damaging than the head. So you hit him in the head. Yes. Mm. You just hit him in the eye more. Uh, yeah. It's, you're going for like a blinding shot or something like that, I guess. And a frontal lobe damaging shot. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it, it was kind of fun. The, the way mechanically it worked was you got a. There was a crit table. It was a beautiful crit table. Like, um, oh, what's the game known for its crit table? Um, oh, fuck. Oh, uh, Dark Heresy. Dark Heresy is known for its crit tables. In my opinion, it got nothing on Fallout. Because Fallout had this beautiful crit table in it. It was segregated by species, and it was segre- segregated by, like, age and size and everything. Segregation's wrong. I'm kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> totally. I'm just kidding. I love. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then, and and the farther down you got, the way more damage you did. It was like 200 item list. It was crazy. Um, and it's kind of meant to do meant meant to, for a computer to do. And so you got all sorts of bonuses, like depending on where you hit people and stuff. And so the eyeballs was like a plus like 200 or whatever. I don't remember the actual numbers, but it was pretty much a guaranteed at least insta kill, if not like uber instant death, like incinerated into pieces, like gory. Kill shit. It's Fallout, and I love it. At any rate, um, I'll stop. So you, you were talking about? Well, I think I think we mainly get all of that in the in the cast. But the oh, point totally. Is that yeah, hey, cut. You can cut all that. The, the, the point is though that you were talking about how you would, you went and lifted a bunch of rules. Yes. Um, I basically went to um, Vault Pen and Paper, and I was like, okay, I like the basic dice mechanic, except. And I changed a bunch of things. Um, I simplified it down. I basically changed everything down to a single single dice roll with the same mechanic. Um, I simplified out DR, damage resistance. I, I simplified armor values. I simplified um, weapon stats. Like, I just cut stuff out. For instance, in Fallout, there is electrical fire, um, physical energy, and... Laser. And gas resistance. Laser is wrapped into energy. Is it? Yeah, it is. There's five resistances. And it was very weird. Um, and I'm just like, alright, we're going to make it energy and physical. Done. Because um, gas resist? There's not even anything gas in the game. And just, if there was, if you were wearing power armor, that would help you. Precisely. Like, whatever. So, um, and like, I, I, I simplified stuff down. Just basically made it a cleaner system. Um, and then I, I completely reworked the perks. 
I, I stole the ideas, but I actually made up a bunch. Because the one problem with Fallout is that there's basically, like, the sniper build, and that's the build. If you want to be good at the game, you build a sniper. So I made melee characters worth it, and I changed numbers to make melee characters worth it. Um, basically what I did was snipers did more damage in a single shot, melee characters could get more hits in. So it averaged it out about, to, about, to about the same damage, but it allowed melee characters to actually close the distance and still do damage. Um, and then I also added like explosive trees and luck trees and all sorts of crazy things. Um, it, overall, it was very well received. Everyone, uh, it was pretty easy to explain. Everyone got it pretty much at the first session. It went over pretty well. I still made it someplace. <laughs> I want to play it if you ever start it again. I might be convinced to run a Fallout game at some point. If you guys don't mind some hardcore trad gaming. Um, the, actually, my favorite part about it, though, was I actually went in and I made a map, all of Fallout 3, and I actually went into Photoshop and made it. Um, and it was set in Louisiana, or, or um, kind of the Gulf Coast area, which I called the Bayou. Um, and the Bayou was a nasty place that no one went. <laughs> and um, I basically just established all the cities. I established the major players in all the cities. I established everything. And then I told the players, and I, I gave them kind of an introductionary, kind of, or an introduction um, set of rails. And then when they were into the rails, it was freeform. And they could go wherever they wanted, they could do whatever they wanted, and the world reacted accordingly. You know, this is actually an interesting... This is, so, so, so I think this is another interesting bit here. There, there are sort of... There are two sort of... Modern games tend to be very prep-light. They tend to not have built-in settings. If they have an implied setting, the implied setting is largely flavor. Like, Apocalypse World has a very strongly implied setting, but there's no maps. There's no... It's a it's a bag of cultural references and and like and like slang, that gives you enough of a feel of the setting, right? Well, here's actually funny. You mentioned low prep. Just because I created this world does not mean it was a high prep game. No, I know, you, I, know you, I know what you're saying, but like, but like, a, but but a, but a lot of older games, like campaign worlds, were a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Shadowrun, White Wolf, D and D. I mean, the list goes on. Yeah, I mean, D&D had many, many, many campaign worlds, right? But they all had a couple things pretty similar in common. It's poor goblins. <laughs> I mean, so, goblins. Um, and I think we've sort of been liberated from that in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Like, you didn't have to make that right. for that game to work. Oh, no, totally. It would have, co- like, honestly, you could have reflavored it to a non-post-apocalyptic, uh, just cruising around a fantasy setting or whatever. Like, yeah. it, I, I chose to make it Fallout because I like Fallout. Or you could have created the world, you started in a place that was unspecific and sort of just created the world as you went mm-hmm. along. Yeah. And yeah. in fact, actually, that happened a lot. I made actually very sparse notes cons- compared to what a lot of people do for trad gaming. Um, they they actually made up, like, I made up a lot of NPCs, like Boris, the, the gun merchant, Big-ass Russian dude. They fell in love with him. He was a one-off character that was like, uh, there's a gun merchant. His name is Boris. Sure. He talks like this. He talks very heavy Russian accent. And and they fucking loved Boris. Like, Boris was their go-to guy for fucking everything. And he became a major player just because they liked him. You will no- you'll notice that, 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 that players will adopt particular NPCs, which is why trying to populate the world ahead of time with interesting NPCs is a waste of time. Oh, yeah. I basically made, like... Like factions yeah. in each city, as opposed to like individual characters, yeah. and it works much better. I'm sorry. We, we, I'm sorry, yeah. sorry. 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 You you mentioned a while back that uh, modern game design has liberated us from having a world pre-made, and I kind of don't feel that that I, liberated I took, I took issue right, with that statement right as well, actually, um, because you know if that's not your thing, then that's great. You've got options. But some people like to have a world that is full of backstory and uh, seems like a living world that you can run around and explore. Heck, ten years ago, that was like the number one brag. Game systems would would everybody was competing I to know. make their, their setting more rich. Yeah. And no, that doesn't necessarily mean that having that is is required. But not having it doesn't automatically make it better. Here, here's what I here's my counterpoint to that. Now I don't necessarily entirely agree with Dave. I do agree with you somewhat, but I, uh, I feel like I kind of split the difference a little bit because I think the difference between modern gaming and trad gaming is instead of coming with all the setting and telling you the setting in a big novella history book type setting or, or, or a setting book, you know, um, you instead kind of come up with the setting as you go. So the world still feels living. Mm-hmm. It's just 
made up a little bit more on the fly as opposed to here's your text history textbook read it all and then we can play the game in some sense it's Schrodinger's campaign setting right it doesn't exist until the players see it because in reality unless the players read the Forgotten Realms handbook it doesn't exist until they see it which one? (laughs) exactly I'm not saying that I particularly prefer one over the other in fact I quite enjoy like playing Apocalypse World where you play to find out what happens you find out about the world while you're doing it that's great it's awesome I love it but I also love the other thing, and I, I, I don't like being limited to one. If I can have both, why should I say that one is better than the other? That is a fair point. However, you know? I would say we were still liberated from it. Not necessarily liberated from the, the campaign setting exclusively, but liberated from being stuck to only it. Because I agree, both are great. And as game designers, being liberated from having to think like we have to come up with this rich world mm-hmm. that we then have to simulate. Right. It's, it's, you don't have to, if you don't want to, you don't have to. You can just. But you totally can. Yeah, you can just have a theme. So now you've done a little bit of game design as well, right? Sure. Uh, amateur, I don't have anything I've well, gotten I mean, anywhere near complete, but, um, you know, we've been working on a 40k campaign. That is true. Um, I actually wanted to hear more about that um, at some point here. I'm. What's your process? Theoretically. My process is I start on it, and then I get distracted and forget about it. Okay. Um, that is pretty much it in a, in a nutshell. Um, I've been, I had been working on a game that, like, three other games have stolen my best ideas from part of. So uh, I play a game online called Soul Forge, where when you play... It's a, it's a collectible card game. When you play a card, it levels up and goes into your discard pile. And so this is an idea I'd had a while ago for, it would be a deck builder role-playing game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, as you, as you did actions, your experience would, mechanic would be that you would either put better cards in of the type of action you took. So if you take a diplomacy action, you can either upgrade one of the diplomacy cards you just played, or you can put another diplomacy card into your deck. So you've got more diplomacy in your deck when you're trying to do diplomatic actions. So, Which I think is interesting because it's sort of, an, in some ways it's an opposite from the, we want a theme and then we'll we'll build the mechanics. In your case, you are, because you you have this very gamey mind, you are thinking, oh, this is a really cool mechanic. Squishy. How I can we you. build a compelling <laughs> game around it? And if you have a single core mechanic, I think that's totally a thing you can do too. Hmm. Honestly, I was playing a role-playing game. That sounds awesome. I need to to pull pull out this. I've got, like, 80% ready for playtest. Wow, Um, you need to get the other 20% so we can playtest it. Yeah. Well, I I would put the shit out of that game at least once, let me tell you. We would definitely try that here, I think. Um, If I'm subjecting you guys to Souls of Steel, you know, we'll play that. um, (laughs) uh, Penny Arcade is actually doing a sort of... It's not deck building, but it is you have a deck uh, of cards... Fantasy one, which I think is called Thornwatch, which also sounds really interesting. And some of the ideas that he's using, I said earlier, stole from me. Not really stole. They independently created it uh, before I got a chance to publish because I'm lazy and don't get things. Which is the other big thing now that uh, game design has been sort of democratized. Like everyone, look, you can game chef. Anyone can submit the game chef now. A few Game Chef games have gone on to win Indie RPG Awards, but most of them don't. They're, it's 10 days' worth of game design. Or they get flushed out into a game if there's a really good idea there. Mostly it's an exercise, right? Mm-hmm. But the fact is, it is democratized. There, um, you know, uh, Todd and Tom were building SCUP, and they're, they're polishing the beta of it, you know, just as Vincent Baker is starting on Apocalypse World Dark Age, right? Um... You know, we have this mech game, and someone else has one in development. It's not a, ours; is not a mech game. Ours is an ace pilot game. Someone else has a mech game in development. I haven't heard very much about it. I don't think this. I don't know if there's a whole lot of progress been made on it. But somebody, somebody had started one at least, and we've already got the regiment, which does a different job, but it's still a military. So the the idea is that like, if you have a great idea that like needs to get made, and this was an idea that needed to get made, like this oh, is absolutely. a hole. There's this giant ace pilot, Battlestar Galactica shaped hole. I've been looking for a game that fills this hole for years. Yeah. So 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 it's like okay, well we know how to fill this hole, so let's mm-hmm. just do it. But like the fact is that if you see that hole, probably someone else does too. Whether that's from a mechanical standpoint or from a from a game standpoint, like a, like a theme standpoint, get 
get your ass to a beta. Get get a Kickstarter. Get something going quick if you really want other people to play it. Because odds are, if you don't, someone else will scoop you and no one will ever play your game. Now, it'll have been a great experience making it. And you and your friends will probably have a good time playing it. But I want more than that. I'm greedy. Right? I'm fine with just friends playing the game. But if strangers want to pay me to play it too, whatever. Yeah. Just end up being like a Rocky and Bullwinkle. RPG and only Epidiah Ravichal Rav- yeah. will care about it. So I guess the second part of it is playtesting, and to be honest with you, we've done some some playtesting. Um, we're not pros at that. I think there's better resources online. I think we can find some good suggestions on how to playtest. There's been some stuff on G Plus lately. The biggest thing that the biggest recommendations that I've seen that I think are productive. Are one, you can playtest small parts of your game, especially if your game is very modular, like you could just hand somebody a deck and say, okay, well, here's the scenario, here's what's gonna happen. Um, and this actually comes from, so I can actually speak to this a little bit coming from video game testing, because we would have people sit down with a, with an early beta of Red Fashion Gorilla, for instance, in a, in a room with a, you know, to a one-way mirror. And we'd largely be kind of just, like, yeah, we'd ask them questions about the game afterwards, but like, and this is true in, in, in my current software development too, customers have no idea what they actually want. But you can see how engaged they are. You can see how they're leaning in or leaning back, how they're using the controller, that sort of thing. And the same thing is true in a role-playing game. You can see when people are engaged, you can see when they're disengaged. And you can ask them questions like, well, what really what really grabbed you? What did you really like? What was exciting for you? What was the moment you were kind of bored or you, you kind of felt like things weren't working the way you wanted them to? Um, and everyone will attempt to tell you, oh, you should put this in your game, you should put this in your game, you should put this in your game. And you know, usually by the time you're playtesting, that's not useful information. But the thing is that if you can elicit that what grabbed you, what what worked, what didn't work, the 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 you can find the, the rough spots that need sanding, and you can find the stuff that doesn't quite work, and you can find the stuff that you want maybe want to add to. The second thing, uh, or sorry, so the, so the second thing was like, yeah, you if you can play test little pieces of your game so that every time you go out you don't have to do a four hour or game, or God forbid, a campaign of something to, to play test it. Do you know what I mean? Because one of the other the other problems is that once people get used to the game, they start automatically working around rules that don't work. This this is true in D&D all the time, right? Um, but you don't actually want that. Preferably, you'd have a stranger running the game for the first time for a group of people who had never played before, and you'd just be watching. I was thinking about for our... Uh... Warhammer Fantasy campaign rules. The nice thing about having it playable without players having to fight battles is we can run through like a little test in an afternoon. Mm. Oh, totally. Where there are no battles. Yeah. Just, you know, the, the running the skeleton of the game for a test. Normally our, like, this is actually going to be the eighth, like, integral incarnation of, of a fun games fantasy campaign rule set where, you know, we would come out with a new basic idea of rules and then revise it up over the course of several semesters of running a campaign in it, like seeing what worked, seeing what didn't, but never really having a pre-players test. Yeah. Anything else people want to add? Um, I can end with a funny story. <laughs> well, yeah, I wanted to actually, that. you know, we, we talked you about in playtesting, you don't want to do, you don't, you don't usually want the, oh, here's how you fix your game. Because you're right, that's not going to fix the game. Um, in fact, it's probably not going to be at all helpful because, you know, while the person saying that is thinking, oh, wouldn't it be great if you could do the X or Y or Z or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, implementing that is not really usually useful. Um, different people look at things in different ways. Um, and, you know, sometimes... If you're this, is, this is a really good point you're getting you're, to here. You're going to get people who say that. And you have to say, well, first off, you should be nice to the person because they are theoretically helping you and say, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. But then what you do is you listen to what they're saying and you figure out why they're saying it. And you ignore what they said But once you get down to the nugget of goodness underneath. Exactly. You nod and Wag of the finger. Yeah. You've been a dick about... Preventing people from making suggestions about soul, about your soul's yes. design. Okay, I've explicitly been been I, I've said it up front that that was the thing that I wasn't interested in. However, you're absolutely right, and why give finger to me too for not doing that when I got that kind of feedback? 
because well, no, and and I'm, 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 there's a mea culpa here because the other thing was not a, was I was not I was not I was not pointing that at anyone in specific. When getting criticism, you you must not become defensive, regardless of or when getting feedback, you must not become defensive ever. It's your baby. Sometimes you have to drown the baby. Um, That's a horrible saying. <laughs> Good face, James. I wish the audience at home could have seen James's face. Two. No, it's more like sometimes the baby's misshapen. You You're have to absolutely right. <laughs> throw it somebody off. Gives you, when somebody gives you when somebody gives you you feedback that doesn't fit into your notion of what what feedback is going to be useful. The important thing is then to work with them to elicit well what prompted that because like you said, I think you think of game mechanics. Mm-hmm. So the you you think of solution first. And you're going to suggest a solution first, but 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 maybe you can't explain with with coming at a problem from a different aspect. Sometimes, you know, it's easier to say, "Oh, here's a solution. Let me explain what the problem was," than it is to say, "Oh, there's a problem with your game." Like that. The, the other aspect is is the whole politeness thing. If I come and say, "Here's a way you can make your game better," theoretically, that's nicer than me saying. Here's where your game's broken. Except as a game designer, you want the here's where your game's broken feedback. I, I say fuck a bunch of politeness. I just want all the information so exactly. I can choose whether exactly. to use it myself. Oh, yeah. When we're working on a thing in the store and some schmuck has some shit to say from two tables over trying to inject himself in the conversation, I put up with it. Because there's at least a 0.01% chance that he will say something and was like, huh, I never thought of it that way. I'm going to steal that idea. Thanks, nameless schmuck. Don't count on getting credited. We <laughs> <laughs> just put, put the table in right away. You know, that, that's actually a very fair So how Hollywood operates. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, uh, Hollywood? I don't know. I, I think it's a very fair point. There, there is definitely, as part of a game designer, like you said, it, it's your baby and you don't want it. You don't want its bad parts pointed out to you in a way but but you, but you need to do. you need to and and you need to be able to put up with anyone saying really anything and then weigh it in your mind and no and maybe it's maybe it's nothing maybe they say your bubbly your 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 baby uh um has a you know has ugly ears but whatever you don't really care about that but maybe you do um and and at least it makes you think about, well, maybe I can look at the years again. Well, precisely. <laughs> if, if you immediately throw, if you said, oh, I don't want this kind of criticism, if you immediately throw that out, then um, I, th- I feel like you're missing out on, on some stuff. And really, uh, the reason I say I don't want suggestions is because I actually want to get the negative criticism. I actually want you to say, this didn't work. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to dance around it. I want you to say, But, but some people work. can't figure out that. Some people yeah. know, this bothers me. I don't know why, but this is what I want to see. And if you can reverse engineer from what they what they want to see, so then here, here's the thing that's put me in the doghouse with Elle a couple of times. When I'm painting or modeling, I hate showing a model to someone and just getting effusive praise. Because if I'm showing a model to someone who's you know modeling, painting, whatever skills I respect, I want constructive criticism. I want to know what's bad about it, what I can do better. Because that's what I want, I do the same thing to other people. Mm-hmm. I try and be diplomatic and tactful <laughs> about it, but, you but explain... I, try, I try and find something that could have been done better. Like, recently Elle did like a fucking fantastic um, hair job on a towel. Hair job, that's not yeah. dirty. She, Go ahead. She I, I, I was sculpting hair on a towel ethereal. Yeah, out of, out of green stuff. First time she'd ever did it. And yeah, I've never seen the hair before. The, the, the only thing I could come up with was that the hair was parted in the center, um, which might not imply that much girlishness. I, on and the other hand, gave effusive praise because you, you did. Well, it, it was, was freaking amazing. <laughs> and, 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 you know, that was like a super ridiculously small criticism. It was the only thing I could come up with. And I didn't do a good job of, ex- of being effusive at the same time. Well, the, the specifically what bothered me about the comment, and for the record, I wasn't like immediately table flipping and inflamed. I, I was just like, tables tonight. I was just kind of like, oh, right. you don't like it. I can imagine the anime of tear <laughs> walking off. Like, I'm breaking up with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, the reason, Yanni, the, the, the reason, like, you didn't start with, wow, that's really good. You know, small criticism. It was just a, ah, uh, the hair is in the middle. The hair parts in the middle. Dot dot dot. Which implies that you're, yes, Blake. So dot you're dot dot, dot. Hand motion. Yes. Um, I don't know. It, like it, it. It is definitely. 
I order of effusiveness. For, like I don't know. There's. I didn't do a good job <laughs> of, of expressing and, that. And I'm, and I, and I'm I, clearly I, very upset with you about well, that. Well, I, I think I managed to explain <laughs> how I really felt later. Uh, but you also know I'm terrible at being effusive. That is also um, true. This is this is actually a really interesting point, though, because like, like what I'm hearing here is tell people, okay, I want the negative thing. Even if you can't put it into words, like, this didn't feel right when this happened. I wanted this to happen. No matter what words you need to use... If you feel uncomfortable giving negative feedback, say something nice first. Honestly, I feel like you should, unless it's, unless you like legitimately feel like it deserves, you know, negative feedback. Like, uh, that was painful experience. You know, if it's just small quibbles, I feel like starting with the, the ego stroking is generally better anyway. I was just doing this, I was, I was critiquing somebody's graphic design on G plus today for a thing. And, there was a minor quibble I had, and I and and like I complimented because it was overall excellent work. I kind of sideways pointed at the thing and then suggested that maybe they take a second look at it. Like you don't need to. How was that received? Well, a bunch of other people were much more direct and said that doesn't work. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I felt like I did it very politically. <laughs> but like the point is that that people want praise, but they also good game designers want good feedback. And so it, you, you have to get people comfortable enough to do both. Stroke your ego. We had a great time, but also this thing didn't work. Yeah, I, I feel like that's, that's really the, the, the key part. And, and I realize some people are more diplomatic than others. That, that's just the way it works. However, this is, this is kind of a twofold. If you're critiquing someone's work, I feel like you should try to be positive about it first before you know, Always. Uh, but, Always. but the opposite is also true. If, if, if you're receiving criticism, if you made something, you should try to not immediately get defensive the first time someone says something. Yes. Cause that is everyone's first reaction. I know I, like, even when he was, when Yanni was just like, oh, the hair part's in the middle. I immediately got defensive. I was like, hey, why was that the first thing out of your mouth? Like, what? No, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> and, and, you know, we as game designers have to, have to really, and I feel like that's almost the more important thing because, because you can't always control the people giving you criticism, but you can always control your reaction, your reaction to, it, yes. to it. And can so we I have, something from this, you or have is to it... keep an open mind of, I'm not going to get defensive. I'm going to think about everything, consider it. Maybe I, maybe I will agree or not, but. Will gave me some good advice there, not because I was talking about this, because I think that, you know, like I said, some of the, some of the, some of the receiving criticism, both Elle and I have, it, there, there was some, there was some friction. Uh, <laughs> And, um, oh yeah, I say this from a position of this is something I'm shitty at. <laughs> may have culpa, may have <laughs> at least I know that what I'm supposed to be doing. So I always do it. Like what you said, just what make a note. Yeah, what what I do uh, sometimes when I hear something that uh, for that that flavor thing is, I listen to the entire thing that they say. I put it as a note somewhere oh. else, and whether or not I act on that is my business. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good point. But it's that, nice. that nice. is very delightfully diplomatic, much <laughs> like everything else you do. <laughs> so, I have something after Blake, who's been waiting patiently. This is all but certainly me projecting, but I wanted these words to have been said so that all of you can decide whether to discard them or internalize them. Turn off the mic! Making a nose. <laughs> Ready and action, hit Blake. <laughs> There's been a lot of... Uh, the, the, the subjects have been talking about, about the reception of criticism and about, oh, you know, it's your baby and you're, you know, protective of your baby and you don't want to listen to, you know, like negative things about your baby. That was not at any point the impression that I got of you guys in the effort, er, in wanting to head off suggestions. It's instead seems more to me like a designer ego thing of, I don't want to hear an idea I might want to use because then I'm going to know that some part of my game was designed by someone else. That is n- now. Let me explain. Now let me explain that why that's not the case. This is a temptation I would have to resist if I were in your Fair shoes. Enough. So I wanted those words to have been said. You can. This is the one that applies to you. That's your point. Can, can I? Just, my, mine's a very short point. That's very interesting. Totally not true for me at all. Uh, very interesting though. I actually never even thought about it that way. I believe most of the not criticism was from you. Um, and I just it can't, come, like... yeah, it was for me. And 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 basic. So two things: one, I'm perfectly willing to steal ideas thrown at me from other people. Uh, that's not the issue at all. And and claim them as my own. I'll um, take my pizza cake. I will not Done. take your pizza cake. I, I you stole it already. Sorry. Um, 
there's there's actually two issues here. One is this is this is this is playtesting advice I actually have gotten from people who do more of this than I do that have done this professionally. There, the problem is once people start making suggestions, then there's this argument over the, everyone starts discussing the things that you could do with the game, and you don't actually get the feedback. What you want is you want to find the holes, you want to find the rough spots, you want to find the breaks in the game. Focus in on that. Take those notes. Find out what people really liked, really didn't like, and then go off and spend the hours it takes to think about it because your, your half an hour discussion at the table while everyone's yelling ideas into the table isn't productive. That's, and that's the reason, and again, it, it had nothing to do, like, if somebody had yelled out a great idea and people had yelled out great ideas at us, Yanni is responsible for doing this a couple of times, certainly. While we were while we were working on the game. Oh, definitely. He, he there was there was several times where he was like, "What about this?" And we were like, "Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's great." <laughs> yeah, Yanni, Yanni will certainly get special thanks when we publish this thing because he is he has he has been making suggestions and some of them were good. David Brand, the sci-fi author, mm-hmm. did a YouTube video about how to win arguments on the internet. Okay, now <laughs> <Damn. laughs> Um, These malls must be like small planetoids. <laughs> it, it's actually amazingly simple technique, and it works. And uh, for some reason, earlier where something we said reminded me of it and made it seem relevant. And I don't remember exactly that was, so I, it's been too far. I can't tie it in perfectly. But basically what you do is you say back to the person you're arguing with, you paraphrase what they said, and ask them if that's what they meant. And so then they have basically three choices. They can either say, yes, I really meant that we should be eating babies as a solution to everything. Or, no, I was being sarcastic, blah, blah, blah. Or they clarify. Regardless of what they do, you come out smelling like roses here. Because you're trying to understand what's going on. You're giving them the opportunity to either dig their hole deeper or climb out of it. Um, And you're continuing the discussion in a civil manner. I work with a guy who is a trained mediator who says the exact same thing, is that when people are talking past each other in a meeting, the, the moderator says, oh, so it looks like you're saying blah, 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 blah. Is this the case? Do I understand that correctly? It looks like you're saying blah, 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 blah. Is that the case? And now you've explained it for everyone and forced everybody to stop and sort of consider each other's points. Mm-hmm. Exactly that technique. That's a very powerful technique. That's a teaching technique. I was taught to do that. Like, a very similar thing. When a, when a student says a stupid thing in class, <laughs> you take whatever part of it was the least stupid, you pull that out and reword it so that everyone can understand and put it so that the students aren't held back by that dumb thing that someone said. <laughs> We're all stupider for having heard that. Yes. I warn so, you no points of a God have mercy on And you soul. twist their idiocy into something intelligent. <laughs> Thank you, Yanni, for that bit, though. I, unlike everyone else here, had not heard that before and found it super edifying. Right. <laughs> now you can go on the internet and... Win an uh, argument. There'd be less people who are wrong. Hot damn! I thought you were going to reduce your table flipping emissions. <laughs> nope. <laughs> it won't be until the EPA cracks down on him. <laughs> You're buying credits, aren't you? <laughs> to tie this all back is actually sort of causally related for me having a miniature for Susan. Because he wrote the Uplift series, which is about uplifted dolphins and mech suits, uh, which got a GURPS role-playing game, which I bought the miniatures for. So I had a dolphin and a mech suit, which I brought to our Apocalypse World game. That went over a lot better than the time I uh, dressed as uh, uh, the masked man. That Speedo was just <laughs> revealing. Well, at least you got some good fan art out of it. That's true. The gas mask was much more uh, ideal. <coughs> the masked... Man! Who could it be? Man. It's man. In a mask. Uh, I think we figured that out eventually. So badly. James had a story at some point. Oh! Yes, yeah, so we're going to end with James's story. That's, <laughs> That's exactly James's funny what it story. Do you remember what James's story is? It's funny. I don't even know if it uh, can compare. I don't care. Oh, yeah. Tell a story. Take oh, us home. Okay. Well, this is actually a story I don't think I've ever told in this group before. But uh, it involves Hoppy. Um <laughs> no, no, it's not a bad story, actually. Okay. No, it involves Hoppy. Involve signpost? No. Okay. Then I might not bad have heard people. it. Anyway, um, so 
Hoppy, this is actually, it's, it is related to game design. So I was hanging, uh, hanging out with Hoppy. We had to go to this boring seminar for work. And he's sitting there in his notebook doodling. And I was like, what is he doodling? And it turns out he was drawing an overworld map. And he was trying to flesh out a game. So he was using this traditional game design where, you know, you come up with all the backstory and all the gods and the royal families. And so he was putting the finishing touches to the map to his overworld. And I just had this mental image, or I told him that I just had this funny mental image of him being the god of the, the, this, these microscopic people on his <laughs> overworld. And in true Twilight, uh, Twilight Zone fashion, they would be experiencing accelerated time. And I would say, you know, in ten minutes from now, they will have uh, evolved technologically to the point where they can leave Middle Earth using interpagal travel. Interpagal travel stuff. And I just proceeded to describe to him how, like, it's like how I imagine interpagal travel, but it would be like a flip book where it's like a rocket shooting across. And, and Hoppy is just like giving me this like weird look. It's like, how would interpater travel even work? And some other guy who was who was eavesdropping of our conversation said, "Speed lines." I was hoping that your story was going to be, you know, in ten minutes' time, they're going to have an evolved level of scientific mastery where they can explain all the mysteries of their world and no longer have need of you. This podcast is fully copyrighted by its hosts. Visit us at podcastmagicmissile.com. I Podcast Magic Missile, attacking the darkness since 2012.